There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, explosive eruptions from the deep earth. And revisiting a science fiction classic 40 years on. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Noah Baker. First up on this week's show, we'll be learning about the ground underneath our feet. A long way underneath our feet. The Earth's mantle is sandwiched between the planet's outer core and the thin crust we walk about on. Although the mantle makes up a huge 84% of the Earth's volume, this enigmatic zone is difficult to study. But thanks to an unusual type of explosive eruption bringing deep rock samples to the surface, we can gain important clues as to its composition. John Woodhead from the University of Melbourne in Australia has been studying new and old samples of these rocks known as kimberlites. Jeff Marsh got him on the phone to uncover their secrets. So kimberlites are very rare volcanic rocks, but they're not really like most other volcanic rocks. In fact, they actually come from the deepest depths of any samples that we have. And they get to the Earth's crust quite violently, don't they? Paint a picture for us of a kimberlite eruption. So when most people think of volcanic eruptions, they think of typical volcanic cones, such as Mount Etna or Stromboli, and relatively gentle volcanic eruptions. Kimberlites are quite different. They're extremely energetic, volatile-rich eruptions, and they just blast holes through the crust. They don't form any sort of volcanic edifice. Um, They just leave a huge crater in the ground. Given that we've never been able to directly observe the mantle, how do you know how deep these kimberlite rocks actually come from? It's really because they bring up diamonds, and the diamonds have trapped within them high-pressure minerals that we know must have formed at great temperatures and pressures, uh, great depths in the earth. So tell me about your kimberlite data set then, and exactly what you did to unravel their secrets. So we've very carefully gathered together kimberlites from around the globe, They're samples that cover the past two and a half billion years of Earth history. We 
dissolved them, we extracted different elements from them, in particular two elements, neodymium and hafnium, and we measured their isotopic composition. And to our great surprise, they appear to all derive from a single deep mantle source. Their isotopic compositions have remained constant through time, essentially. And you suggest in your paper that their isotopic composition reflects a sort of primitive chemistry of the Earth's mantle. How do you come to that conclusion? Well, their composition is very similar to a, a class of meteorites called the chondritic meteorites. And they have a composition that we think best reflects that of the early Earth just after the core formed. So the fact that these kimberlites have that composition and it's remained constant through time leads us to believe that there are still remnants of that very primitive early Earth still surviving in the deep mantle. Presumably that's quite surprising, given how much we know things move around over time at the crust, that part of the mantle might have remained the same over more than half of the Earth's history. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's actually quite surprising because we know that tectonic plates are continually being recycled back into the Earth's mantle at subduction zones. And so there's inevitably quite a mixture of components down there. But it still seems that some parts of the deeper mantle have remained preserved. And it's, uh, this is important to know from the perspective of understanding the planet's geochemical evolution. So where exactly do you think this pristine reservoir is in the mantle? Because the mantle is pretty big, isn't it? Well, we know that it can't be in the upper mantle because we do have other rock types that source the upper mantle and they don't show these compositions. It really has to be somewhere in the deeper mantle. And we know that kimberlites, at least some kimberlites, come from at least 800 kilometers depth. And so that gives us our best estimate of where these materials may lie, at least at that depth. Now, you mentioned in your paper that some of the more recent kimberlites are slightly different in their composition. Does that muddy the story somewhat? Yeah, there is some evidence that the the very youngest kimberlites, those just a few hundred million years old, have been perturbed slightly. But while there are kimberlites that show that feature, there are still some young kimberlites that show this primordial signature. So we believe that the bulk of the source is still intact, but that small regions of the source may have been perturbed relatively recently. So what's next then for you? I guess so far we've only really found kimberlites that go back two and a half billion years. It would be interesting now to try find some older materials to try and extend this story a little bit. But kimberlites are quite rare rocks, so I'm not sure what our chances are of finding any older materials. We really rely on the diamond industry to find those rocks for us, I guess. I suppose a modern day kimberlite explosion would be pretty interesting. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great to see that. But from a distance, I guess. That was John Woodhead from the University of Melbourne talking to Jeff Marsh. You can read John's paper and a News and Views article over at nature.com. In this week's news chat, we'll be hearing all about the opening of the world's largest single-dish radio telescope. Listen out for that at the end of the show. Up next, though, Anna Nagel is here with this week's research highlights. How is a champagne bottle like a fighter jet? No, this isn't a joke, as it turns out that when a champagne bottle pops its cork, it unleashes a supersonic jet of freezing gas. Researchers in France trained high-speed cameras on champagne bottles to closely record what happens during that iconic moment when the cork shoots from the bottle. Watching the cloudy jet that forms as the pressurised CO2 in the bottle is released... 
the team spotted characteristic shock waves that indicated the gas was travelling faster than the speed of sound. You can also see these so-called Mach disks in the exhaust trails of fighter jets. Celebrate that research over at Science Advances. Vaccination is an important public health tool to protect against disease. But new research from Canada suggests that in mice, the time of day you give a vaccination could affect how well it works. Circadian rhythms affect many physiological processes, and cells, including immune cells, have their own internal clocks which change gene activity across a day. Researchers gave mice vaccinations at different times of day and looked at how particular immune cells responded. They found that shots given at midday stimulated the immune cells more than at any other time of day. Get a shot of that science over at Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Next up, we're setting off across the galaxy to discover hyperspace bypasses, fish shortages and existentially unhappy elevators with only a small guidebook to lead the way. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't panic. The answer is simple. This October marks 40 years since the publication of the classic book The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by British writer Douglas Adams. Resident sci-fi geek Sharmini Bundell is here to celebrate the anniversary and find out how far real science has come since 1979. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a book about a book. Both books are called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But while one is, as you might expect, a guide to the galaxy for hitchhikers, the other tells the story of Earthman Arthur Dent and what happens to him when his home is demolished. The home in question is planet Earth, and author Douglas Adams describes the destruction of the Earth to make way for a hyperspace bypass like this. There was a terrible ghastly silence. There was a terrible ghastly noise. There was a terrible ghastly silence. Although the real Earth has managed to survive the last 40 years undemolished, some aspects of Douglas Adams' imagined universe seem rather prescient. To discuss the real science within the famous science fiction world, I've brought in what the book might describe as two hoopy fruits with brains the size of planets. I've got Carl Zemelis, Chief Physical Sciences Editor at Nature, who's seen many a paper on space, robots and other sci-fi staples across his desk in his 27 years here. Hi, Shamini. And I've got Ed Gerstner, who's chair of the Springer Nature Sustainable Development Goals programme. So I'm guessing that means you're doing your bit to help make sure that the Earth doesn't get destroyed by a hyperspace bypass or otherwise. Ideally, or climate change, but certainly how we can make the world a better place. So uh, the eponymous book of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy itself in the story is supposed to be a huge repository of knowledge that an interstellar hitchhiker might need to make their way around the galaxy. This was how Douglas Adams described it. The reason why it was published in the form of a micro sub meson electronic component is that if it were printed in normal book form, an interstellar hitchhiker would require several inconveniently large buildings to carry it around in. And when Douglas Adams was writing that, that was was true, like data needed actual buildings to, to store large amounts of it, right? Well, absolutely. But I think what's interesting about this quote is the presumption that all the information will always be contained locally. Ten years ago, they were talking about terabytes of memory on just a very, very small, like a penny 
could be stored terabytes of memory. And I'm going, that's what I want, so I can put all my music and all everything. And no one even tries to do that anymore because it's all in the cloud. And Douglas Adams hadn't even conceived that you'd have information in the cloud. Well, there were some things that were pretty hard to predict in 1979, but also some issues that were around then and that just haven't gone away. We've already mentioned the destruction of the Earth being a major plot point. Um, But here's a quote from the second book about a less dramatic way in which we're destroying the Earth. The trouble with most forms of transport, he thought, is basically one of them not being worth all the bother. On Earth, when there had been an Earth before it was demolished to make way for a new hyperspace bypass, the problem had been with cars. The disadvantages involved in pulling lots of black, sticky slime from out of the ground where it had been safely hidden out of harm's way, turning it into tar to cover the land with, smoke to fill the air with, and pouring the rest into the sea, all seemed to outweigh the advantages of being able to get more quickly from one place to another, particularly when the place you had arrived at had probably become, as a result of this, very similar to the place you had left, i.e. covered with tar, full of smoke, and sure to fish. Now, this is a much more realistic depiction of the, of the problems facing us today than the Earth being destroyed by a Vogon constructor fleet. And since this was originally published, scientific papers about how we're destroying the planet in, in various ways have presumably become a lot more common. No, absolutely. The research endeavour has, over the years, sort of dug much deeper and deeper into just trying to understand more concisely, more clearly how the environment is changing around us and understanding the mechanisms and the processes leading up to that. And the doomsday scenario of the hitchhikers is aliens are going to destroy the Earth. Well, I would just say bring it on. (laughs) I'm just really excited at the prospect of of publishing the paper. That is the first convincing evidence of aliens. That's going to be one hell of a coup if we get that paper. Just a shame that no one will be left to read it. But let's discuss one more quote. Um, So in the books, the guide itself has entries on pretty much everything. And this is how the first book describes the entry on space. Space, it says, is big. Really big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemists, but that's just peanuts to space. Now, there's not a lot of complex physics actually delved into in the books, but it sort of alludes to the fact that the universe is complicated and we are a very small part of it. And is that something that with each new sort of physics discovery is reinforced? I mean, astronomy has been going great guns for decades now. And with each new revolution in instrumentation, we're constantly being amazed. I mean, at the moment, we've got uh, we've got uh, the, a whole host of sort of like transient events, the th- things that go bang in the night, which in the past you had to be really lucky looking in the right direction at exactly the right time, at exactly the right wavelength to have seen this fleeting object or fleeting event. But now we've got the technology to really scour space and see a whole host of phenomena, events, big things happening that we had no idea were going on. I would just add to that the fact that the things that I learned about at university were things that our lecturer said, but of course, we'll never actually detect a gravitational wave in our lifetimes. Of course, we're unlikely to ever see a black hole in our lifetime. And yet all of these things have happened. I think that's just as mind boggling as the fact that there are all these things that we don't yet know about. The fact that we got so much of it right. 
There's one final quote that I think applies to all of us here, possibly all of us here in the, at Nature and the, the scientific community, which is from the original Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy book. Uh, Arthur Dent, the hero, talking to Slarty Bartfast, who says, What does it matter? Science has achieved some wonderful things, of course, but I'd far rather be happy than right any day. And are you? No. That's where it all falls down, of course. Pity, said Arthur. It sounded like rather a good lifestyle otherwise. That was Michael Stacy there, reading quotes from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, with Carl Zemelis, Ed Gerstner and Sharmini Bundell providing some irreverent commentary. Finally on the show, it's time for the news chat, and I'm joined in the studio by Lizzie Gibney, senior reporter here at Nature. Lizzie, hi. Hello, Ben. Well, for our first story today, then, we have a story that you've written about a massive telescope. That's right. This is a radio telescope in China, and they've been building it for about five years now, and it is finally ready to hit the mainstream and officially end its commissioning period and start running for real. This is a big telescope, but how big is big? pretty big. It's 500 metres, half a kilometre across. And um, it's really impressive to look at, actually. It's just an absolutely enormous silvery coloured dish within this depression in a very, very remote location in China. It looks a little bit like a kind of Bond villain's lair or something. And, uh, and what's it designed for on this, this sort of giant half a kilometre wide dish? So it's a radio telescope and it is the biggest one in the world. So it collects these very, very faint kind of whispery radio waves that are coming in from the cosmos. And it means that we're able to study in really exquisite sensitivity, really great detail, loads of different phenomena across the universe. What sort of things in particular? Well, there's a huge variety. So it's the kind of bread and butter of any radio telescope. So it's able to look at the hydrogen emissions from distant galaxies and and chart the universe in that way. It's also able to see pulsars. So these are the dead cores of neutron stars that are spinning and, and um, putting out this radio emission very, very regularly. But it's also going to be able to do a few more kind of more intriguing things that just become options in the last few years. So for instance, it's hoping to maybe be able to see exoplanets, so planets that are outside of our solar system um, through their radio emissions. And that's particularly interesting because radio emissions only come from exoplanets planets when they have magnetic fields. And now on Earth, the magnetic field has been really, really crucial to, to life and to having an atmosphere. So scientists are quite excited about this idea that we might be able to see planets and their magnetic fields. So you know, potentially a lot of applications then, is it just simply at sheer scale that makes it better than other telescopes that already exist? Pretty much. The more collecting area, the more kind of reflective surface you have, literally the more sensitive your telescope is. So in that way, it's better, you know, it can see more faint signals than any other radio telescope that we have out there. But of course, you get cons along with the pros, so it's not um, able to see a huge amount of the sky. So if you're looking for things which happen very randomly, or very, very quickly, like um, detecting new fast radio bursts, which are kind of mysterious fleeting blasts that we see happen out there, um, then it's not going to be very good at finding new ones. But once we know that there is one there that repeats, you can then hone in and you can... uh, turn the huge power of this telescope onto studying that particular source and that's when it becomes really really good how do we go about turning this telescope to look at something it seems very difficult to sort of manually sort of push it to face a particular direction how, how does it work so when you want to focus on a different part of the sky the way it actually works is it forms out of this one enormous dish kind of different 
parabola within that by shaping these 4,000, I believe, different aluminium panels. So it's incredibly complex. And that's one of the reasons that it was actually a really radical design and people weren't entirely sure that it would work. So in order to do this kind of focusing on different parts of the sky, 2,000 odd different winches pull and push these little plates into the right place. So it is really quite a feat of engineering. Finally on this story then, what's the timeline? When will this telescope start collecting data for real? Well, it has been collecting data um, for the past couple of years while it's been going through this testing process. And that's been quite exciting because actually it's found like more than 100 pulsars already and, and all of these fast radio bursts. So we know that it's working. But now it's officially, it's passed um, a series of tests that mean we know it's working exactly as it's supposed to and in fact exceeding that. And so there's just going to be a review meeting now that happens very excitingly <laughs> next month, which will be the green light basically from the Chinese government and that means it is now officially open for business and the upshot of that as well is that that means international researchers will be able to bid for time on the telescope because up until now it's just been for Chinese scientists. Let's move on to our second story today Lizzie and it revolves around something that's very dear to my heart and that is food uh, and particularly bananas one of my favourite breakfast snacks Um, but bananas are in trouble. That's right. So last month, the Colombian government confirmed that a fungus that kills bananas called TR4 has now invaded the Americas. And that's a huge problem because although this fungus has been around the world, the Americas is the source of of most of the world's banana supply. And then the really big problem is that a particular kind of banana called the Cavendish, which is by far the most popular in the world, it accounts for about 99% of global banana shipments, um, is susceptible to this fungus. So potentially we're facing a huge problem. Well, why not just sort of treat this fungus with, you know, fungicides or or, or chemicals and what have you? Unfortunately, it's a really, really tough fungus. Um, It can't be killed with fungicides and it actually lingers in soil for up to 30 years, which means that the normal ways that you might go about trying to get around it are not going to work. So we've got this unkillable fungus then and we've got a giant monocrop of uh, of bananas worldwide. It seems like a a recipe for disaster. I mean, why not just uh, breed a more resistant banana? Well, that would be a great idea, except that unfortunately that's not possible with the Cavendish banana and that's because it's actually sterile. And so... So the way that you get new ones is just just to clone it. So conventional breeding isn't going to work here. One method that might work, though, is to genetically modify, to genetically engineer. So there's one group in Australia who is working on taking a gene from a wild type of banana um, that is resistant to this particular fungus and then putting that into the Cavendish banana, which is not resistant. They've done a couple of small scale studies already and they're now planting on a big uh, half hectare of land to see if they can have the Cavendish bananas grow despite this TR4 infestation. So far, that trial is going well, but it probably won't be till the study ends in 2021 that we know whether it's really worked. Well, a while to wait then. Is anything else in the offing? So another method that researchers are trying to use is the ever-fashionable CRISPR. So instead of inserting a gene from a different type of banana into the Cavendish, what they're trying to do is actually just tweak the genome of the Cavendish in order to boost its resilience. Um, So there are a number of different ways that they're trying to do that, trying to either turn on a dormant gene that actually would give resistance to TR4 or another group are trying to suppress the genes that actually make it vulnerable. So there are a couple of different strategies there. Um, One issue though is how regulators are going to deal with these bananas. This may be a daft question but is there not just a different sort of banana that we could eat? 
There might be. The thing is, the Cavendish is very popular for a reason. It has a particular taste, texture. It ships really, really well. So people are very keen to keep using the Cavendish. But of course, there are actually thousands of other types. So it might be that we can either find another variety that is suitable or maybe people will have to change their taste slightly. Indeed. Well, thank you for joining me, Lizzie. Listeners, head over to nature.com slash news for more on these stories and the latest updates from the world of science. And that's it for this show. But before you go, if you're interested, head over to our YouTube channel, where you can find a roundup of last Friday's global climate strikes. Why did scientists take to the streets? That's at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can do so on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast or on email. We're podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Noah Baker. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.